Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to episode 86 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. As always, we are glad you have joined us. On Monday, April 5th, 2021, I was involved in the launch of Current, a new online platform of commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture, politics, and ideas. My friends, longtime conversation partners and collaborators, Jay Green and Eric Miller, found ourselves exhausted by the cultural warfare that now dominates our civic life, threatening to undermine the bonds of family, friendship, and neighborhood. We are demoralized by the quasi-religious authoritarianism we see growing on both the right and the left. By the start of 2021, pandemic aside, I was tired. I felt like I had been through a war, I just spent four or five years trying to convince anyone who would listen, but especially my evangelical brothers and sisters, that Donald Trump was bad for America. At the same time, I experienced attacks from the academic left for defending what I perceived as its illiberalism. See, for example, my interview with University of Tennessee historian Daniel Feller in episode 72 of this podcast. It turns out Jay and Eric were feeling the same way. We launched Current to provide commentary that clarifies and explains our political and cultural moment, summoning readers to intelligent, constructive purposes. Like American democracy at its best, we aspire for Current to be free, dynamic, divergent, and civil. If spirited, even profound disagreements arise on the platform, we hope they will always be bounded by common regard for liberty of conscience and free inquiry, and moderated by shared commitments to humility, charity, and mutual respect. If you are new to Current, let me give you a lay of the land. 
We publish a magazine quality feature essay every weekday. You can find these at the center left of currentpub.com. My daily blog, The Way of Improvement Leads Home, now going on 13 years, continues in its usual format. But I felt like it was time to bring the blog into some kind of larger conversation. Right now, we are publishing one of our features each week behind a paywall, accessible only to patrons who support us at a rate of $5 a month. Those willing to support us at a higher level get access to my new narrative history podcast, A History of Evangelicals and Politics. We've now done 10 episodes. We have even higher levels of patronage that come with other perks and benefits. I hope you will consider supporting us. In today's episode, our guest is Eric Miller, the editor at Current. A gifted writer and wordsmith, Eric presides over our daily features and in the process casts Current's political and ideological vision. Some of you may remember him from episode 65 of this podcast when he helped us get a better sense of populism in America. Stay tuned as we pick Eric's brain about his vision for Current. He will be with us shortly, but first, let's take care of some business and let you know how you can support our work. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This free podcast is brought to you through the patrons of Current, an online journal of commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture, politics, and ideas. We keep this thing going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you hear, or read at Current and want to support our work. And that includes this bi-monthly podcast, our daily opinion features, the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, and our narrative podcast on the history of evangelicals and politics. Head over to currentpub.com and click the red support button, or go directly to our Patreon page at patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash current. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. You can follow me at John Fia one, or you can follow current at current underscore pub one on Twitter. We are also on Facebook and Instagram. And if you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet. And consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Eric Miller is professor of history and director of the honors program at Geneva College in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. He is the author of Hope in a Scattering Time, A Life of Christopher Lash. That book won Christianity Today's Book Award in the History and Biography category in 2011. Eric has also authored the essay collection, Glimpses of Another Land, Political Hopes, Spiritual Longing, published by Cascade Books in 2012. 
and he is the co-editor of Brazilian Evangelicalism in the 21st Century, published by Palgrave in 2019, and Confessing History, Explorations in Christian Faith and the Historian's Vocation, published by Notre Dame University Press in 2010. His essays have appeared at Commonweal, The Front Porch Republic, Christianity Today, Books and Culture, Comment, and First Things. He currently serves as editor of Current, which can be found at currentpub.com. Our guest today is Eric Miller of Geneva College and the editor of Current. Eric, welcome back to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. It's like coming home, John. <laughs> I feel very improved just being here. Turn your heart towards home. Here we are. Some of you who have been listening to the other podcast know we just did an episode on James Dobson. Turn your heart toward home. Let's talk a little bit about Current. In the introduction to the podcast, I uh, I talked a little bit about kind of our vision and you know what Current was all about. Really, just kind of drawing from the about mission statement that's on the, uh, the website. You know, maybe it's just me. I, I think you feel the same way, but we've been kind of describing Current as a kind of little magazine or a small magazine, right? And I know that you've always been a fan of these sort of little magazines, if you will. You know, give us some historical kind of context. What is a little magazine other than the fact that it's, you know, a magazine and it's small, right? Most people don't know that as a category, right? A yeah. little magazine. You know, what is a little magazine, Eric, and why are they kind of so special? They're special because in a kind of deep way, I think they reflect the promise of democracy. The power of democracy was to create space for people who didn't, they didn't have the ability to speak in public in the ways that they gained or took uh, advantage of once we opened up the political uh, wall, so to speak. So uh, this intersects, of course, with the rise of publishing uh, in its modern form and the rise of the printing press. And so with all this new space for civic activity and for citizens to be citizens and to co contribute to the public sphere, there's the possibility of new little institutions uh, where people of like-minded interests, concerns, uh, who share an ethos, share a faith, could come together and try to strengthen the things that they believed in, uh, that they thought would contribute to the public sphere. So with the rise of democracy, we have the rise of publishing and all these different little enterprises. So they're little magazines because they're small circulations and they're little because they tend to reflect smaller groups that nonetheless have the ability to exert considerable presence in the public sphere. And it's kind of a neat dynamic. So we have the major publications like the Atlantic or the venerable publications, Harper's that go back into the 19th century. And then in the 20th century, we have the big magazines like Time and Newsweek eventually into the 1950s, 60s, 70s. But all along the way, you have these other little magazines. Some are more literary, some are more political, some are kind of more social science-y. But they all represent this attempt to go into this democratic space that's opened up and do some good in it. And it's really uh, a, a wonderful thing. Can you sort of name some of these? I mean, some of them last for a long time. You know, they've been around. 
I was just looking at Yale Review the other day, which claims that it was the first little magazine. I'm not sure yeah. if that's right or wrong, but, uh, you know, so they've been around for a while. And then you have others who like have, you know, they last like a few years or, you know, they have, you know, 500 subscribers or something like that. Right. Um, what are some of the successful little magazines like Beyonce kind of Yale Review or something like well, that. Yeah, that's a great question because some of them start out small and then they become very yeah. big, but they still want to maintain. It's hard to think of anything that has Yale in front of it as a little magazine. That's true. And yet in terms of content, for sure, there's a kind of quality to it that feels like that. I'm thinking Yale uh, Review published one of my favorite essays by Annie Dillard called Singing with the Fundamentalists. I remember that essay. Yeah, she talks, I think it came out maybe in the mid 80s. Uh, and she talks about as being a professor in the 1970s at, at a state university on the West Coast. And she goes out every day and sings choruses with the young yeah. evangelicals, even though she herself isn't an evangelical. But she says, I just I just sing whenever I get the chance. <laughs> she talks a so little that, bit about that story as well, I think, in The Writing Life. Is that the yeah. book, The Writing Life? Yes, yes, yeah. 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 So a writer like that, who, you know, you're not going to open Time magazine and read an, uh, a literary essay called Singing with the Fundamentalist that's right. literary, but also making a significant intellectual kind of cultural point, as it were. That's what you find there. Yeah. Salma Gundy is an interesting one coming out of Skidmore College. And it was a, uh, and it still is a, a journal that publishes all kinds of intellectuals who have genuine eminence, but sort of are like a pace or two or three off of the mainstream trail. And so you find somebody like, I wrote a book about Christopher Lash. He was a longtime contributor to Sama Gundy. And they asked him at their 10th anniversary edition to write about it. Yeah. And uh, and I think you actually referenced that piece in a in an article that you wrote about Little Magazines. You know, yeah. as Lash was trying to sum up the the importance of these. Uh, you have different moments when they kind of rise to this, rise to the front. There was a cultural ferment in the aftermath of World War One that gave us what eventually was a new republic. Some of them didn't make it. There's the, the kind of Marxist moment that gave us the new masses magazine. One of my favorite American intellectuals from the mid 20th century was a guy named Dwight McDonald. And he was sort of like a pre-blog blogger, I guess who published his own little magazine called Politics and uh, staked out some ground for a non-Marxist left uh, in the aftermath of World War II. And eventually he ended up writing for the major magazines. Uh, but for a while, his publication held out a lot of hope for a lot of people. That's maybe another thing, important thing to point out. The little magazines may not have big circulations, but they tend to have, they have had a history of having big effects on people who are very seriously involved in politics and the life of the mind and the arts. So they exert an influence that is not quantifiable, but has a very significant qualitative effect on the ethos of the day, the discourse in terms of uh, the way it affects people who are contributing to that elsewhere. Yeah, some of you may remember this few episodes we had on uh, Claire Potter. Uh, mm. from the new school and she had just published a book on um, kind of news and media and so forth and uh, through her work I was introduced to this guy Izzy Stone yes. who, um, and then I actually picked up a biography of him so I'm like about a quarter of the way through this 
great Rutgers University Press biography of Izzy Stone. Can't remember the name of the author right now. You know, he was literally like, I think he, he wrote for, for this uh, left-leaning kind of, uh, where Dr. Seuss wrote these cartoons, PM. And then he started uh, this kind of almost like, you know, mimeographed uh, kind of thing in, out of his apartment, you know, like Stone Review or something. Stone's Weekly or Stone, Stone's like, Weekly or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And a lot of it kind of reminds me, and this kind of transitions into sort of what we're trying to do, at least at current. I think that it would take us some hubris at this point to suggest that we're, you know, we're like, you know, trying to kind of produce, you know, a magazine to the potential or to the success of one of these little magazines that you just mentioned. But, you know, we, we certainly, I think, see current in that you know, tradition, at least that's the way we're envisioning it. You know, our readers can decide whether or not uh, we succeed on that front. But I'm thinking about new technology. You know, I'm thinking about stone with the mimeograph. You know, Claire Potter talks about this in that episode. You know, I'm also thinking now about all these kind of, you know, the little magazine kind of moving to places like Substack or, you know, what we're doing sort of little online kind of spaces. Maybe talk a little bit, Eric, about current in that kind of you know is current a little magazine do we, what do we aspire it to be in terms of this kind of tradition yeah we've actually formed ourselves as a limited liability corporation and call ourselves yeah. current media and that right. gives you a sense of the new frameworks that are so fluid and i had a i have a colleague i was trying to explain what we were doing she's a boomer and was a 60s radical and uh, I said, you know, surely the way you and, and your friends opened up a, a bookstore in downtown Beaver Falls in the 1970s, you know, you could just do that. Like, that's kind of what you can do now with the different sort of media. You can just go open your, you know, your own shop, so to speak. Um, and this is one thing that intellectuals do consistently, as long as we've had the phenomenon of intellectuals in, in modern democratic life. The way we hang out our shingles is to start something like this. You know, we can't open up a law office, but we can start a a little magazine, so to speak. But of course, it's it's not a it's 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 not a magazine in the classic sense uh, of pages, you know, or anything like that. But I think it is it carries that spirit, and especially it carries the mission. I think is a key thing. I think of like partisan review is another one uh, worth mentioning, maybe the most eminent 20th century American little magazine. And it was a lot of people who were trying to find a way from the left toward the uh, actualizing of their vision, apart from what was going on in the Soviet Union at that time. And they brought together these high caliber writers to try to do this. And it wasn't just because they really enjoyed the process of putting together a magazine. They had something they wanted to do with it. Yeah. And I think that's a key point. Uh, you know, these different, when we were at Trinity, John, you know, we were both working in some ways in this zone of the intersection of, in terms of our research on the intersection of politics and, and religion and publication and that kind of thing. So I, you know, I wrote a thesis on the origins of the Christianity Today magazine which was put together by a bunch of people led by Carl F.H. Henry, a a philosopher and theologian who had been a journalist, and they wanted to reassert a kind of evangelical presence in American public life. So they, you know, they formed this magazine that started in Washington. So I think it's this attempt to try to do something 
with what you're doing. And we're just trying to figure out what that looks like in a digital environment. And it's, it's tricky. Like you're saying, Substack two, two years ago, where was Substack compared to now? I, you know, to me, it's only been in the last eight or 10 months that it's, it really is really popped. I just was reading a piece the other day that said, uh, you know, Heather Cox Richardson, who is, you know, the star of Substack, probably she and and this this joint effort, the, the Dispatch with Jonah Goldberg and, and mm-hmm. David French. Heather's making, uh, you know, a million, a million dollars a year on, you know, uh, a kind of daily report on the news from a historical perspective. And you have uh, Andrew Sullivan, you know, going over from, I read, I can't remember where this piece was I was reading, you know, he was making 175,000 or something writing for New York Magazine, and that doubled when he went over to Substack. You know, we've, we're not in this, I don't think, for the money. We're not making any money on current, but, you know, these platforms are taking off. I think that's the point I'm making, right? You know, where writers now I think one of the things, at least I'll speak for myself here, one of the things with why we kind of decided to create a website or a platform or a magazine like this, uh, rather than kind of doing this kind of Substack model is I think the Substack model can, tends to kind of be focused much more on a kind of individual writer. And I think our model kind of allows, you know, I feel like I feel like it's a bunch of people in a community kind of trying to promote some kind of a vision which I think is very, very different than just kind of the lone wolf kind of writing for subscribers. And, you know, it's just my opinion and sort of, I do a little bit with that at my blog, right? But I think I said this in the introduction to the podcast, you didn't hear this. I mean, one of the things why I wanted to create this platform was so I could bring my blog into some kind of larger community. After 13 years, I thought it was time to kind of, you know, be part of something bigger than just kind of me as an individual kind of riffing on that front. So let's talk, Eric, you know, we're talking now about this kind of, you know, little magazines have visions, little magazines have missions, you know, there's, there's a sense of purpose uh, that a lot of people who come together to form these little magazines kind of have. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about what the mission is of current, you know, I think so far, and again, we've only been at this for what, three months? Um, Not even quite. Not even, you know, I mean, so far we've had this kind of operating metaphor of the arena, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really kind of builds off of your opening piece, which we published on the first day. The full title was In the Arena, and then the subtitle was, it's, I think it was, I think I got this right, it's time to play. So talk Mm -hmm. about this metaphor of arena of play and what do those metaphors mean? How uh, are we conceiving this space, if you will, that we're kind of forming here at Current? The element of play seems to me to be something that is truly an element. It's elemental. Uh, If play is absent, one starts to kind of look for an exit. Um, that you don't last long in any relationship or or you don't want to last long in any relationship or an institution in which there's in which the possibility of play has vanished and uh, I think that when we started to toss this idea around uh, I think 
especially with with focus uh, in the fall of this past year, we were in a moment in which you could, <laughs> in which the absence of play um, in American public life had probably uh, not been so noticeable for for decades, and rather replaced by this sort of martial spirit and uh, a kind of brutality, politics of brutality um, that was so disheartening. And it made me think about this as we were sort of working up to this, you know, to this launch that how can we, is it even possible in some dimension of American public life, however small, to restore something that feels like the joy of just living together, the joy of ideas, the joy of possibility, the joy of mutuality and and collegiality and solidarity. And um, I don't, I haven't talked to anybody coming through these past few years and then intensified by the pandemic who has just had a really easy time on, on these, on all these levels, whether it's at the level of family, extended family, all the political conflicts, the divisiveness, the bitterness within families, within churches, within colleges, within neighborhoods. Uh, you know, it, it was it became painful to go through go for a walk around the neighborhood just because of the competing signs that you'd see or flags that were like you know were waving. You know, I mean, at one point, my wife and I were walking through the neighborhood, and she said something like, "You know, remember when the American flag just like was up there by itself and didn't have to have the name of your candidate underneath of it?" You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just sort of why she said this is what you know this is this is what democracies do. And I think that's I think that's a uh, I think that was a really uh, sort of illuminating response that this isn't what democracies have done. We've gathered together around an ideal, and then we've had something that was became known as uh, the loyal opposition, <laughs> mm -hmm. with an emphasis on loyalty as well as opposition. You have a common con so that spirit I think is what we've lost. So I think the arena um, metaphor is just to to signal that there's play in a couple different ways. There's play in the sense of, uh, you know, there's something about this that's really pleasurable and fun, but there's also play in the sense of uh, uh, the beauty and thrill of bringing your very best skills, your very best efforts to something that really matters and going for broke. But yet realizing that it's just an arena, it's not a battlefield, we're not gladiators. Uh, and what 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 began to disturb me, especially uh, over these years, uh, these these recent years, the post Obama years, um, is just the sense that the other side, that the two sides had kind of given up on uh, the pursuit of a common vision, and and was replaced by the hope that the other side would just either die go away or be vanquished and we wouldn't have to worry about them anymore. <laughs> and obviously there's no future in that because that's not going to happen. Yeah. So the arena is just an attempt to try to get us to back up a little bit and think about who we're with. There's a wonderful piece by Mark Schwain uh, in the last week or two called Casting Out Demons. And, uh, and the subtitle uh, that we put up there was uh, just how far away is, quote, the other side. And I think we'd like to bring the other side a lot less, a lot closer, <laughs> and, and 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 in in a safe way.
so whatever the other like, side is to you. We want to we want to play like kind of on the line of scrimmage, not like a kickoff. <laughs> something like that. We're trying to smash the. That's pretty yeah. bad. That's a pretty bad metaphor, but uh, or a pretty bad way of. But actually, you know, it's it's not. I mean, there's a certain sense even to go a, a separate, perilously toward in the football direction. Uh, I mean, the fact that football itself has become such a a perilous sport to play, it's sort of symbolic of a lot that's going on. You know, yeah. things should not be this dangerous. Yeah. Whether it's politics or whether it's sport. Yeah. So the, so the, uh, you know, the, the arena is kind of democratic life, democratic culture, you know, yeah. obviously in any arena, there's, you know, people exist outside of the arena, right. Uh, you know, who may be kind of not necessarily interested in democratic culture, or at least are, are not perceived that way. So, you know, and then there are certain kind of rules, right. That, rules of the game, so to speak. Um, you know, maybe you could talk about kind of the other side of that, you know, the kind of things that perhaps, you know, I think the arena, which is suggested with an arena is we're interested in publishing all kinds of different views and perspectives, you know, as long as these people are willing to, you know, not get called for clipping or 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 going off sides or holding you know um then maybe they don't belong in the arena uh or what what is it in college football now uh, where you can get kicked out of the game for helmet to helmet or something like that um so so what are are there boundaries to the arena yeah that's that's tricky and that's uh uh that's that's controversial yeah <laughs> at that moment and that's what we're taking on ourselves with this um and uh and that and frankly i think we're just trying to figure this out step yeah. by step you know there's a kind of violations like you're talking about the uh the aggressive forms of violation yeah. that disqualify one from play and then there's this the performance disqualifications where yeah. you know you just can't lob seven interceptions on seven consecutive passes and expect to play yeah it's true um so, uh, so we're looking for serious players who want to honor the rules and can also do well as, as players. Um, and uh, it's traditionally been the role of little magazines to help us understand what those rules are for democratic discourse, who, who call out people. You know, I've, I'm a longtime reader of the New Republic, uh, which is, um, you know, over 100 years old now. And... Um, and the New Republic uh, and, and any of these magazines, there's books now, once they get around long enough, the Christian Century, Alicia Kaufman wrote a, a book about the Christian Century, another kind of little magazine of sorts. Um, you know, you can see ways in which they ended up making some bad calls themselves. <laughs> you know, the, um, the umpires aren't perfect. The umpires are trying to figure out, in this case, we don't have a neat little book of rules, you know, for how to do this. Right. Um, but we are trying to honor these foundational dimensions of life in a republic, which requires mutual respect, which requires a possibility for genuine argument across respectful divisions, uh, which requires some kind of fundamental allegiance to the ideal of democracy itself, however you may want to qualify it, however you may want to um, you know, be willing to make warnings about the problem of totalizing democracy, making democracy the final, you know, there's still, there's still, 
I think that we're looking for decency and the possibility of respecting people within the democracy who do not see see things the way that I myself may or 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 you may. And you know, we have different. You and I have differences. Uh, certainly, the authors we published so far uh, over these weeks, you know, have considerable differences. And I think, uh, you know, I, I do think there are certain fundamental core rules, right, you know, about any kind of discourse, right, that it's based on reason, truth, um, right, you know, we're probably not going to publish pieces that um, are deliberately designed to kind of violate certain virtues of democratic society, like, you know, attack pieces, or, although, you know, depending on who you are, you could think everything we published in some ways, but you're on the left or the right is an attack piece on your view, right? Yeah. But that's what, you know, we're editors, we make those calls as to what we think. And that's, that's what these little magazines are all about, right? It's people making calls. Um, right. But, but, you know, I, I think, I think, uh, you know, I think there is a sense in which, you know, in a very general way, we're trying to kind of raise um, important questions about, you know, what is truth? What is rational argument? Um, right. You know, we tend to lean, I would say we tend to lean on the side of science, right? Um, and then, you know, we also kind of, uh, you know, I think have some genuine concerns about, you know, kind of a fundamentalism kind of on the left that wants to cancel any kind of view that doesn't conform to a certain ideology so i'll just leave it at that i mean i don't think i don't think we want to like i think you you answered my question really well because i don't think we want to kind of we don't know what those boundaries quite look like yet but you know we i think we're starting to realize as we get pieces coming in we know what they look like when we see we when we see pieces we kind of you know say okay yeah this is pushing this or that boundary yeah, I think you and I know as historians that uh, anytime you would go back and look at some institution that purports to be there for all parties, it itself has some ideological stance, oh, yeah. even if it can't yeah. see it at the time. Oh, yeah. And I think we we are aware of that in a kind of uh, in semi-inchoate way that we're, yeah. we're working toward refining through this process. Uh, there's a history of magazines, of course, that do try to be a place that are representative for all parties um, and the major publications tend to be those uh, uh, or tend to at least have a, 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 an instinct to go somewhat in that direction. But they all tend to represent at some point, you know, the New York Times is a liberal publication. It publishes David Brooks and Ross Douthat, who, yeah, yeah. you know, um, and, and others. So I think we're, we're, we're trying to figure this out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's the key at this point. And, you know, we'll see where it takes us. Now we do, we do identify in our kind of mission statement or uh, look it up, you can look at the about statement on the website. We do identify uh, as Christians. Uh, we should add our third partner here, Jay Green from Covenant College, who is our managing editor, really kind of makes the ship run in a lot of ways. Um, you know, teaches at a Christian school. We all three of us actually teach at Christian colleges with kind of evangelical roots. Um, but, you know, may, I'll let you respond to this. You know, is Current uh, a Christian publication? I think that Current represents, Current is a framework that reflects Christian thinking about public space, about the, the public yeah. sphere. 
Um, and uh, it's for anyone. Yeah, <laughs> it's for all. It's for citizens. Um, it's for people who find this conversation that we're having, these arguments that we're having, useful, and uh, for advancing their own understanding of the world, or or something that provides some form of of satisfaction, pleasure. So I think it's something that's consonant with with our own public theology, if you will. Um, but it's fundamentally as that a civic space, uh, a a civil space. Um, so, and of course we've been at this, uh, this particular project for a brief amount of time, but personally we've been involved in something like this for a long time now. I mean, at a personal level, all of us. And so I think we're just trying to, um, put a different kind of institutional form into place that can reflect this hope for a uh, a public theology as Christians that that is capacious that's hospitable um and that is for the public good yeah and we do not have any kind of you know faith requirement or whatever to write for us too i mean we have non-christians who have written for us we have you know jews um, you know we have people from all faiths and people with kind of no faith at all um who who are interested in this project so it's a it's a you know even though we come at this kind of you know as christians it's a much larger you know, arena, right? You know, where we want to hear all kinds of voices and engage in that way. So, you know, and I think I think there's something about a kind of Christianity um, that's very different from the Christianity you see kind of on the Christian right or something like that. That that kind of I hate to say it this way, but kind of not afraid of those voices, right? That that want to instead welcome and engage uh, with, not even welcome, because that almost seems it seems like we're kind of you know I welcome them into our space, right? You know these kinds of voices. So um, so yeah, yeah, very well put. Let's let's uh, let's talk about what we've done so far. Um, mm. So can you think of, uh, you know, maybe think of, I'm going to ask you two questions here. Let me think, think about a, a couple pieces that we've published that kind of really reflect the spirit of what we're trying to do. I mean, hope they all do, right? Mm-hmm. But, but some that really kind of, uh, you know, are classic, if you could call it that at this point, kind of cla- <laughs> classic current pieces. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> Yes, in the short life with which from which we can draw our from our classics. Um, or better yet, better yet, you know, if you were to give a couple pieces to someone who wants to know what we're about, you know, yeah. uh, which ones would you give? Yeah, yeah. That way we can. Well, I, I mean, one that comes. Right, right. One that comes to mind uh, early from this early stage is Daniel Williams' uh, piece on Texas and Massachusetts. Yeah, Daniel uh, Williams, with, history professor. Uh, jo- Northern West University, West Georgia West Georgia University uh, scholar of um, the Christian right uh, wrote a great book on the history of abortion um, you know just a really great thinker writer and historian of kind of Christianity and politics yeah and uh, and Dan has this wonderful uh, ability to 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 show in 1200 words why understanding the story matters yeah uh and a story that you might think is a simple red state versus blue state 
those people in the red states, you know, they're blank. And those people in the blue states, they're, you know, he just, he takes you through in a, in an amazingly short amount of time and, and makes you realize, wow, this is a complicated story. Yeah. Uh, why is it that the, the red states, uh, have been resist have been pro-life on the one side in terms of the, the issue of abortion, but very much against the uh, the the pandemic measures that that were put in place to try to save lives by the uh, by the CDC. My body, my choice, right? Yeah, my Ask body, my choice. Vaccines, yeah, yeah. I mean, Dan uh, just does a, a a really it's just a penetrating essay, and 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 I love it for the for the backstory that it gives, but I also love it because he leaves you realizing how absurd. Uh, the red state versus blue state dichotomy is in terms of its effects on our own souls. I mean, Dan, Dan leaves it saying, you know, well, well, where do you belong? If you feel a kind of sympathy to, to, you know, this part of one state, you know, and, and that part of another state. Uh, and I think it, it's, again, it's something that complexifies uh, our circumstance in a way that's, that that leaves you in a different place than where you started and that's what an essay should 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 do yeah so yeah i i think that's a that's a that's a wonderful essay if you want a, a keen sense of what's going on in current i i love um jay green our managing editor's piece on george mar on reading george marsden with gen z yeah uh because for uh for for jay for you, for me, for, for I imagine many of our uh, readers in the Gen X category and older, um, we, we're grappling now as we are well into middle age uh, with what these changes have been that have taken place since the 1990s, which really was becoming more and more apparent. It's becoming more apparent, a very different era than the one we're in now. And, uh, and Jay's piece, just gives a wonderful sense of how it is that we can um, begin to to grapple with this really crucial question um, of uh, of where our students are now and where are and how the huge influences that we've had, like a George Marsden or other kinds of scholars or intellectuals, um, how they how, how how they're playing. Um, so that's a, a to me that that was a that one's kind of signals something that we're up to. Yeah. Um, yeah back to this kind of play metaphor, right? Or fun, yeah. right? What, what are what are some of your kind of personally kind of favorite pieces that yeah. current that you've well, read? Yeah, we have a, a, a Catherine Lucky, uh, who was the managing editor at Commonweal and uh, is now working as a journalist on the West Coast uh, in, the, in the Bay Area. Uh, Kate wrote a, a wonderful essay about Silicon Valley um, where she, uh, she had just moved there mid-pandemic from the East Coast and and um, talks about running through the Silicon Valley, which just the whole idea of that cracked me up yeah. because I just I I don't imagine the Silicon Valley is actually having streets at all. That's like what jogging, it is. Jogging, yeah, jogging. Yeah, yeah. She's jogging yeah. through the Silicon Valley, and I'm like, is that is that a place that you could jog through? I kind of imagine you would do it like in some other digital space. You would kind of yeah. like go digital jogging or something. <laughs> it reminds um, me a little bit of the of, of uh, you know the flip side of that. Long ago, you wrote a piece called. Keeping up with the Amish, 
in which you were jogging through Amish country. Maybe we should somehow get those two pieces. That's true. I had not thought about that. It's the same dynamic. You don't jog through the Silicon Valley. Uh, But she, um, and she's writing and she's, uh, she's just a wonderful writer. She, she's, she gives you this uh, sense of what, what it actually does feel like to do this. And as you read it, you're thinking, well, I guess if you're going to run through the Silicon Valley, that is what it would feel like. Um, but she just she just posed, she just pauses uh, midway through the essay and says, "Is any of this real?" Yeah. And then when you think about the effect that this all that's happening in the Silicon Valley is having on our everyday lives, um, in terms of the decisions that are being made and this infrastructure that's being developed and the the imagining that's taking place, and if it is coming out of a place that, that does not give the smack of reality, then we are too becoming unreal yeah. and less real. Um, and so through a kind of, uh, you know, a, a kind of creative means, uh, she takes us to a, a deeply, deeply serious question. So very, very playful. Um, and because of that, I think a sign of life. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I have to I have to throw in a uh, uh, one more plug here for by uh, some of you may be wondering why does this Brazilian guy show up? On oh the, yeah, yeah. On the in Alexandre, Alexandre uh, Brasil Fonseca. Uh, it turns out uh, that we met uh, eight years ago on a project I was working at in Brazil. I studied Latin American history and lived in Brazil in my adolescence. So. Um, so Alexandre worked for uh, the president. He's a sociologist at the Federal University of Rio. He worked uh, in the uh, in the administration of President Dilma Rousseff, uh, who was a member uh, president, member of the Workers' Party there, who was impeached. Um, and Alexandre had to suffer through that. So he's uh, uh, has a keen eye on the intersection of politics. <laughs> Um, and religion and public life. And um, his recent essay that he just we just recently published, I think is a good example of the kind of thing that we're trying to do where you really do stand up for argument and fact and you and you listen very carefully to scientific data and you try to think as clearly as you can about it. And he exposes in this essay, one that was actually republished in um, Le Monde Diplomatique, um, He's, uh, he, he shows the, the devastating consequences of violating those tenets of the public square when you don't follow sound argument, where you don't follow reason, where, where, where it leads. Um, and he also holds up a counterexample uh, where he says in Utah, some of those missteps were made, but then they were corrected and, and lives were saved. So, uh, so I love that kind of intervention, if you will. Yeah. And he's he writes with such kind of passion. I know you translate him from the Portuguese, and that takes it can take some time. Yeah. But um, you know his voice, I think, uh, is important. And you know, just having said that, we'd love to get some. You know, I was joking at one of our editorial meetings, right? You know, it's like we cover American democracy and Brazil. You know, and current. You know, we we we'd love to get some other pieces from other parts of the globe. What's going Absolutely. on and so forth. Uh, we've been trying to cultivate writers on that front. Speaking of, um, you know, writers and you know, as an editor, you know, what are the kind of pieces that you know you want to see more of at current? Well, I think we're 
trying to um, focus on the moment, right? That's that's one pole of what's happening. So we we're looking for incisive commentary, reflection on what's happening. But we're also looking at looking for pieces that illumine what the moment is in a in a less direct way, um, that that may help us to step back and rethink some things that uh, you know that can help us to 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 frame again what it is that we're seeing. I mean, there's only so much uh, good that CNN does after a while. Or even, you know, the PBS News Hour, or, or you know, pick, you know, there's a certain moment where we have to step away from that level of of uh, kind of communication, and just move beyond uh, to spaces that 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 give us a different vantage. Um, we published a, a an essay by uh, a guy named Robert Earl Barham this past week about his time at Cambridge uh, as a graduate student. And it had absolutely, it has absolutely nothing to do with anything that you're going to read about in the newspaper, except that it's a powerful reminder of why we care about politics in the first place or anything in the first place, because it just takes us into the zones of our lives that, uh, that give us the deepest kind of personal meaning. And if we don't have that kind of connection, we're not going to have much to bring to public life. We're just going to be sort of empty voices that are just kind of chanting at each other all the time. I think we talked, we've been talking about this even just recently, right? You know, trying to strike a, a kind of balance between stuff that kind of is really geared towards the reactions to the news cycle, right? Yeah. Um, and then kind of these, these kind of larger, I mean, in kind of scope larger kind of pieces like Barham or, you know, like, you know, I loved kind of, a, is it Deanna, Bro, Deanna Brody's piece on, you know, realizing that her friend from Africa had never heard of the Holocaust and rather than, rather than, um, you know, criticizing her, she realized that, you know, how privileged she was to be able to know kind of this kind of, you know, those kinds of big pieces that speak mm -hmm. to kind of larger cultural issues and trends. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think we're still trying to figure that out, right. How to strike that balance between both of them. And, you know, so sometimes I think you're gonna, you're gonna see pieces that, you know, we're also thinking about, you know, how to schedule all these pieces, right. You know, I mean, yeah. suddenly we get this piece on something that's happening right now, but we had a piece like, uh, you know, a graduate student going to Cambridge scheduled for that day or that week, right? So we're, you know, we're new at this kind of magazine thing. And a lot of the burden, of course, falls on you as the editor to kind of shape this, shape this uh, vision. I just want to ask you one more thing, um, you know, and, and we've, we haven't talked about this publicly, I don't think. We had a meeting with our patrons recently. This didn't come up. Um, but uh, but you've been trying. Tell us a little bit about these kind of arcs that you're trying to create. I don't know if anyone's picking up on them, but like one of the things you like to do is create an arc of two or three essays, kind of in the middle of the week or something that um, you know speak to a, a given topic. Yeah, if you think about magazines uh, that maybe come out once a month, uh, there are certain magazines that have that are centered around a theme. You have a theme issue. Yeah. 
well, what is it? What does that look like on an online publication that where yeah. where everything is coming out? Well, I, we can kind of have little theme issues, so to speak, where we 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 get some focus together for two or three over the course of two or three days, um, and it and it helps us to consider. Uh, I think it just gives us a, a sort of deeper point of focus that we're unable to get in the same way that you would if you had a paper, you know, a hard copy magazine. But I think it gives us a way to burrow a little deeper into a topic. So the the piece that, that Catherine Lucky did on Silicon Valley was our lead piece that week on the Monday. It was followed by a piece by a guy who it turns out uh, is a trainer of, uh, of uh, employees for a medical software company. Yeah. So then you got you went from the kind of general world of Silicon Valley into the particular world of uh, what he called uh, agile product development or software development, um, and uh, and that was a, that was kind of like a that was a nice one two punch. I can't remember what the third one was, but it was nice too. There was a third piece that yeah. followed that one. I'm trying to remember. Um, or we had one that uh, we have a, a an environmental historian and a wonderful writer named Tom Oakey. Um, at Kennesaw State in Georgia, wrote about the humble plantain, uh, which you remember is a thing, the kind of uh, weed that you would pick up and you could shoot the stem, you could shoot from the stem and the blossom would go out. My wife, we were on a walk at the park and she was having fun with that plantain play. And then I wrote a next a piece for the next day on a uh, environmental writer and activist. Uh, well, he calls himself an ex-environmentalist named Paul Kingsnorth. And then that was followed by a piece on uh, family policy. So there was something that was very organic about these pieces yeah. and spoke to matters yeah. that are sort of, so that's the kind of thing, that's one of the things we're trying to do. Little yeah. currents, little currents within the big yeah. current, if you will. Yeah, that's good. Little currents within the big current. And it also, you know, in so often now we read news by like, you know, whatever kind of pops into our feed and it's, mm. it's so separate from other other thoughts or other stories, right? They're these isolated pieces that are shared with us or something like that. And it's also kind of like music. You know, I've brought this up in our meetings. You know, it's about music, right? Today, we just listen to the song we want to listen to on our playlist, mm. right? But but we're wanting you to listen to, to read the whole album, right? To listen to the whole album. <laughs> Yeah. You know, if you if you if you listen to the whole album over the course of the week, you might find two or three songs. There's a story there somewhere. Not always, you know, and every every yeah. piece during the course of the week is not going to kind of fit the storyline. But most albums are like that, too. You know, there's always two or a couple songs that are like, oh, how does that fit into the story? You know, but, yeah. uh, you know, maybe this is my kind of Springsteen fandom coming out, you know, but it's not just Springsteen. You know, every album kind of tells a certain sure. kind of story about the culture and so forth. Yeah, that's uh, exactly right. That's. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. And that is, you're right. I think that's something we, when we lose that sort of, uh, that kind of connectivity between pieces. Um, yeah, we, 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 uh, there's a chance that we're, we're, we're losing capacity to see the world whole. Yeah. Um, I, there's a book that came out several years ago by a guy who talks about narrative collapse that we're experiencing yeah. narrative collapse that, yeah. We're losing interest in narrative itself as a form because of just responding to the constant stimulation. And that's, I think that's dangerous. Yeah, so I think the ideal person that we want to come to current is, is someone who wants narrative. They want, we want readers, right? We want people who are reading every day. You know, and of course, every periodical wants that, right? But, but we're kind of hoping that people will come and say, you know, 
what's the narrative that's being built, especially when we have these little arcs that you're trying to create, as opposed to kind of, you know, we'll still get, you know, some of our most popular pieces are ones where people just kind of dive in from the outside, but that's not the ideal, at least sort of, you know, it's the ideal for numbers, right? You, we need numbers, we need supporters to keep this thing going, but, but the kind of, kind of high ideal is to get kind of readers to kind of read through during the course of a week or a month or something like that and sort of capture some kind of a vision, uh, mission of kind of what we're trying to do. Yeah. We are talking today with Eric Miller. He is the editor of Current. You can find it at currentpub.com. Check out every feature that we publish there on the sort of center left of the, of the platform. The website runs through his editorial grinder, you know, so to speak. <laughs> um, Eric, thanks so much for coming on and talking about Current. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Well, if you don't know much about Current and what we're all about, hopefully you do now. That was a lot of fun talking with Eric, talking about some of the things that we've already published, some of our favorite pieces at Current. And uh, for those of you, again, unfamiliar, really situating Current in some kind of longer trajectory of the, of the little magazine, of people getting together to try to really do something, maybe with a purpose, using this platform to try to advance some kind of uh, agenda that would be helpful to our lives together, to our democratic society, and so forth. So I hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation as much as I did. And head over there and check out Current. You know what I? I'm serious about sort of reading through it. You know, Eric's really intentional about creating these kind of arcs. He calls them of articles, and you know sometimes they're so subtle that it's really hard to pick up unless you know that they're coming. Again, I hope you enjoy what we're doing at Current. You know, I continue to blog over at The Way of Improvement Leads Home. So I know people were, some of the readers uh, were a little anxious that The Way of Improvement Leads Home would disappear uh, after we moved to Current. That is not the case, um, as you can now tell. Thanks for listening to this episode. Uh, hopefully it, uh, you learned a little bit more about our goals and our plans with this new publication. So, okay, until we meet next time, May a way of improvement lead home. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is recorded via Zoom. Original music is by Overholt. The co-founder of the podcast, who is now off doing bigger and better things, is Drew Derley Hermelin. Our producer out of Nashville is Casey Lehman, and I, John Fia, am your host. <laughs>